The referendum has been held. The letter has triggered Article 50, uh, Britain's decision to leave, and the process is underway. Brexit means Brexit, and we're going to make a success of it. It is not in our interests to see the Republic of Ireland do anything other than prosper. We cannot agree to do this unless we have firm guarantees that there will not be a hard border in Ireland. Hello and welcome to the latest installment of Paddy Wants to Know Brexit with me, Jack Good, and my co-host, Brian Mann. Hey guys, what's up? So Brian, we're into summit season, or so it would seem. The silly summit season. The silly summit season is in June. Um, do you know what a summit is? I actually don't formally know what a summit means. It feels important, but I feel like I need a refresher. Well... So the summit basically is all the heads of state, so that's prime ministers and presidents, the likes of Leo Varadkar and Angela Merkel, come together. And it usually is a place where they just rubber stamp things that have been agreed through all these other various meetings leading up to it. Um, This one that's coming at the end of June was meant to be the big breakthrough on the Irish border question. And it was meant to be solved and tied up in a bow. And that was going to be the end of it. But that's not the case, is it? That's very much not the case. <laughs> um, and we're, we're going to speak in a bit to Paddy Russell. And we're also going to speak with... Uh, Arti Shankar. Um, she's a policy analyst with Open Europe. They're based in the UK there. And, I mean, both of them were pretty adamant that, I mean, we're not going to get a deal come the end of the summit. Yeah, that seems to be the broad agreement. That's what was kind of signposted uh, this this week by Juncker um, when he was in Ireland. Uh, and very much seems like that's the, the sense coming out of London and Brussels as well. So October, here we come, baby. Here we come. I mean, I suppose it's probably worth having a listen back to what uh, Jean-Claude Juncker said when he was here. Yeah, but, definitely. Like, I mean, it's not hold your breath time, is it? No, <laughs> I think that's fair to say. So we'll just hear from Jean-Claude Juncker now. He was speaking in the Irish Parliament. As the clock to Brexit ticks down, we must prepare for every eventuality, including no deal. This is neither a desired nor a likely outcome, but it is not an impossible one. So that was Jean-Claude Juncker there. I mean, a no-deal Brexit kind of coming up on the horizon. That's, that's not what we want, is it? That's not what we want, and it's what Juncker said they didn't want, and said it was neither desired nor a likely outcome. But we must prepare for it. But if we're talking about it, it's becoming more possible, it's becoming more relevant, it's becoming more pertinent. Yeah, certainly. And, you know, that's why June was initially billed as, you know, being a very important summit uh, for Brexit and figuring out the the withdrawal uh, section of the agreement. Um, But unfortunately, you know, the time is going to pass. um, And on towards October, November, um, we go. Is it time we heard the mood from Brussels to see what the check in with uh, Paddy Brussels to see what what the actual mood there is? Yeah, I think it's going to be really good to just get a you know behind the scenes look of what the the mood music is over in our favourite European capital. Because here at the moment it just seems to be resigned to the next deadline, which may or may not be passed. Yeah, exactly. So uh, let's hear from from Paddy Brussels. Overall, it feels like Brussels is a bit fed up by Brexit now. Uh, for a long while there was a residual hope that Brexit might not actually happen 
now it feels like Brussels has accepted that the British are leaving and are focusing on bigger, more existential issues, such as the migrant crisis, the new government in Italy and the conflict with Poland. Publicly, Brussels is now just frustrated by the lack of progress, the lack of clarity and the mixed messages emanating from London. However, I think there is also a sense of self-righteousness as the mess of the Brexit process shows how bad of an idea it is to leave the EU. So Brussels is also frustrated then with the lack of clarity from the UK side. I mean, we've heard there seem to be a change of tone from the Irish political parties on that as well. I mean, I suppose it is now crunch time. Certainly that comment from Paddy Brussels about, you know, frustrated at that lack of progress, you know, the lack of clarity and the mixed messaging, I think in particular, you know, um, resonated um, with me anyway, in terms of the frustration that has felt there. But I mean, that's something that's been going on, you know, since I think it was this weekend, two years ago, that the, the vote happened, that lack of clarity. Um, so I guess while we have we have Paddy Brussels on, this upcoming uh, EU summit, is there anything of interest from an Irish perspective or is the border issue moving to October a formality? The border issue, the Irish border issue is basically the last remaining issue that needs to be resolved before the withdrawal agreement can be adopted. The Irish government had set the June summit as the deadline by which the UK must put forward a backstop proposal, which would make sure that there is no hard border on the island of Ireland even in the case where there is no final Brexit deal. The British cabinet was finally able to agree on a temporary customs agreement, which would effectively mean the UK remaining in the customs union beyond the transition period. However, this was rejected by the EU because it was temporary in nature, i.e. not a permanent solution, and because the EU believes customs is only one part of the problem. The EU argues that there are two reasons why trucks should would need to be stopped at a border. Number one, to make sure that trade tariffs and quotas are applied, i.e. customs. Number two, to make sure the goods are produced at the right level of quality, i.e. that the produce won't kill you if you eat it. So these are called regulatory checks. For the EU, even if the UK were to remain in the customs union indefinitely, there would still have to be border checks for regulatory reasons. For there to be no checks, the UK would have to have the same regulatory framework as the EU, i.e. remain also in the single market. So this obviously goes against the UK's objectives and hence the lack of progress in talks by June. The Irish government has therefore pushed the deadline for an Irish border solution to October to allow for more time for talks. If both sides stick to the red lines, I do not know how a solution can be found. But if some solution is found, the withdrawal agreement will need several months for parliamentary ratification before the UK formally leaves at 11pm Irish time on March 29th next year. Working backwards, that means November or December is the real hard deadline, as otherwise there will not be enough time for ratification. So, I mean, Paddy Brussels there, I suppose we're we kind of almost getting fed up with deadlines, but he's saying working backwards means that November, December is the real hard deadline. Do you think that's kind of inevitable October will then become November, December? Yeah, well, look, you know, as Paddy Brussels said, you know, working back, it's March 29th. 2019 um so working back from that all the european all the parliaments across europe have to approve it so yeah like november december is probably the ultimate kind of time frame in which this has to be wrapped up so that's a that's the definition of a hard deadline because it needs to be approved by everyone else and you know there's maybe no guarantee that that's going to be even the case that could be a whole other set of discussions that need to take place across every member state so paddy what do you make of the prospects of a no-deal Brexit? 
There's a lot of talk again of the prospects of no deal on the backstop and therefore the UK crashing out. What people forget is that the Irish border problem does not go away in that scenario. In fact, that would be the worst scenario for Ireland. Remember, the backstop is all about deciding in advance what to do in case of a no deal. So if the Irish government gets a choice between an imperfect backstop or a complete no deal, they will have to go for the imperfect backstop as by definition, it would be better than a complete no deal. But before we, I suppose, before we get there, um, Paddy, what are the big issues at, at this upcoming summit um, apart from Brexit? The biggest question at the European Council Summit will be on migration and whether Chancellor Merkel will be able to get support for a European solution on asylum. Her coalition partners, the Bavarian Christian Democratic Party, the CSU, they've given her until the summit to find a solution before they adopt a policy of turning back refugees at the German border who have been given asylum elsewhere in the EU. Merkel opposes this approach and so if they adopt such a policy, she will have no choice but to fire her CSU interior minister which could preempt the collapse of the government resulting in fresh German elections. There are state elections in Bavaria in October and the CSU are afraid of being outflanked on the right by the alternative for Germany, the AFD. So Paddy Brussels there talking up an imperfect backstop. What would you make of that? I think it's a good point, very well made, um, because it is in effect what's holding it up, uh, the whole negotiation. So an imperfect backstop may well be something that will have to be accepted. How that's sold domestically um, and what Fianna Fáil or the other opposition members will make of it will be another uh, topic for discussion, I'm sure, with an impending election in Ireland too on the matter. Obviously, you mentioned Merkel there and the CSU. Uh, Angela Merkel met with the French President Emmanuel Macron and has kind of reinvigorated this discussion around the future of Europe. Where does Ireland fit into this um, discussion and and where will Ireland be in this future of Europe debate? The Irish government under Fine Gael is reorientating Ireland as a member of a newly formed informal group of 11 Nordic and fiscally conservative countries led by the Dutch, referred to as the Hanseatic League. So ahead of the June Council next week, this group wrote a letter which criticises the Franco-German proposal for a Eurozone budget. This proposal is already quite limited compared to some of President Macron's reform ideas presented in September last year. So if agreement is reached next week, we should expect a further watered down proposal, which will do little to advance genuine and needed Eurozone reform. In the Brexit context, Ireland is smart to pick new allies. However, in the long run, I think they could be on the wrong side of the argument, especially as the Eurozone reform debate is not so emotive in Ireland versus the Netherlands or Germany. Given the likely direction of the tax debate, it might make more sense for Ireland to side with France on Eurozone reform so it can better manage that country's stance on taxation. So, Brian, we just heard there from the um, enigma, Paddy Brussels, changing voices, but not really changing opinion or, or frustration there. No. It, we've talked in previous podcasts about the new friends we're going to make. This group seems to have a new name. Yeah, the Hanseatic League. Um which I was intrigued by. What What's this going to mean for, for Ireland in if the future of Europe? Well, I think, you know, we've spoken about it previously and Paddy Brussels, um, you know, put it very well. Ireland needs new friends and it needs more of them on a lot of big issues. So this group, uh, the 11 Nordic and fiscally conservative countries led by the Dutch, you know, is kind of there to, you know, 
help articulate their case, their vision, their idea for Europe uh, vis-a-vis, you know, the, the French and the Germans potentially. Um, and how that works. But I suppose before we get into this new reality, uh, it's probably a good time to actually get the UK perspective. And we've got Arty Shanker. She's a policy analyst with Open Europe. Um, they're a think tank that focuses on UK-EU relations um, and obviously are doing a whole whole, whole load of work uh, on Brexit at the moment. So we'll, uh, we'll speak to her just after this break. I'm strongly against any temptation to try to isolate Ireland and not to conclude the deal on Ireland. But I also want to be clear, Ireland will come first. Ireland's border is Europe's border, and it is our human's priority. So let me be blunt, there isn't much time left if we are to conclude an agreement and to have it operational by the time the United Kingdom leaves the European Union next March. I have some difficulties to walk. I'm not drunk. I have a sciatica. I would prefer to be drunk. Okay, so up now we have uh, Arti Shankar. She's a policy analyst with Open Europe, which covers UK-EU relations and are focusing uh, a lot at the moment, obviously, on kind of what the post-Brexit relationship will look like. Arti, thanks for coming on the show. No problem. And it's kind of great to get a, just an English perspective on it. We're kind of two years on. I mean, we hear Brexit means Brexit. In a nutshell, what was Brexit about and why Why did people vote for Brexit? Do we know that yet? Yeah, I think uh, there have been a lot of polls since the referendum that have looked at this question, what were people voting for? In a very short answer, I think po- people were voting for a change. Um, and, and that has meant a multitude of things to a lot of people. I think uh, polling has showed that what was what stood out as the main reason that people voted leave was to take back control of laws. It was this idea of sovereignty and that the UK should be able to decide how to govern itself and, and the regulations in its own domestic environment and so on and so forth. Part of that kind of take back control also had to do with immigration. Um, I think these were key drivers of the vote. They're not in and of themselves the reason why people voted to leave. Um, but certainly there will be a there has been and there should be uh, visible change from our withdrawal from the EU, I think, to really respond to the referendum vote. And sorry, just on that migration question, it's something we, we've, we're we not quite sure of here. Was it the migration, f- intra-EU migration, as in people from other EU member states coming into the UK, or was it external third countries um, that there was an issue with? So Open Europe has done some polling on this and we didn't actually differentiate between EU and non-EU migration when we were asking this question. We simply asked the idea of immigration. Um, I, I, I wouldn't be able to, I, I haven't looked at the polling uh, closely enough to know whether or not um, poll, uh, voters made that differentiation or not. Uh, my instinct is that immigration in the UK is considered as one form, whereas in kind of EU member states, Certain EU member states kind of will think of intra-EU migration as freedom of movement, not immigration. And I don't think that that's the perspective which with, with, with which the UK approaches this debate. No, it's, it's interesting because uh, Nick Clegg was writing in the FT recently on kind of that question of freedom of movement. And it's one yeah. of the four principles, but he was noting that in Belgium they have, they've actually expelled unemployed EU citizens in Germany there's limitations on it um, and there's now changes yeah. to the posted workers thing so I think his point is kind of almost a, 
uh, sort of wishful if only they'd done this before the vote. But that's why I was curious as to as to whether there was a breakdown in, in intra EU or external immigration. No, absolutely, absolutely. The point that Nick Clegg raises is right. Of course, there are controls. Um, that you can apply to freedom of movement as an EU member state that could respond to some people's concerns. I mean, the polling that that we looked at showed the polling, the results that we um, came up with showed that people were concerned about things like uh, immigrants coming to look for jobs in the UK, coming without a firm job offer, or the criminality of the criminal background of immigrants coming to the UK. Those were some of the key drivers of people's concerns about immigration, and there are ways which with which those could have been addressed as an EU member state. But the fact is these arguments come a little too late. If if this was real, this could have addressed people's concerns. It should have been done while we were a member state. I think it's too late now to suggest these these look too piecemeal um, and almost like a kind of superficial fix um, for what for what people voted for. I don't think it would be sufficient at this point to address um, the Brexit question. So just on the, the Nick Clegg and um, the, the follow back pro-European uh, Twitterati, there was a People's March um, there over the weekend, I think a hundred thousand people. Is there going to be a second vote? Mm. A second referendum in the UK. Uh, I, I don't think it looks likely at this stage. And I think perhaps the calls are, are getting a little louder for it. And certainly, if we reach um, the October summit, and it looks like not a lot of progress has been made, I'm sure the calls will get even louder. Um, I don't see it materialising. I, for one, I don't think that there is sufficient time for which. For, for us to hold a, a kind of a suitable referendum vote on this. Um, and and if you look at the polls uh, for how would you vote, not simply in a, in a second referendum, but how would you vote if we were outside the EU? Would you vote to rejoin the EU? There actually there is it's not a majority, but the greatest proportion of people say no, they wouldn't. Um, so it's not it's not clear to me that, that this that a second referendum would really resolve the issues. The fact is the UK kind of population remains extremely divided on this question. I'm not entirely sure that posing the question again um, will solve much. Artie, just before we kind of get down into the nitty gritty, like what was going on in the UK Parliament last week? Because it just seemed to be absolutely crazy. What was it and was it important? It was important. It was it was essentially a debate over what role Parliament should have in agreeing the the relationship that the UK and EU will have um, in the future after Brexit. Um, and the main the crux of this argument last week was over a meaningful vote for Parliament. Um, and essentially, that meant if the government came back to the table after negotiating with the EU and put on the table um, an agreement that Parliament didn't didn't like and wanted to vote down, would Parliament have the right to? decide what goes on after they say no to this deal or does the UK simply leave without a deal um, and the government's position was very simply that parliament would have a yes no vote it would not be able to direct the government in the future in future negotiations um, whereas parliament wanted the ability to say we would like to send you back to the negotiating table or we would like to extend negotiations with the EU um so what happened last week so the tory rebels never rebelled so what was the kind of the, the result of all the to and fro So it, I think at the end of the day, a lot of people would say <laughs> it was a week of arguments that ended in not nothing that was very, that looked very, very different to what we started out with. So the government will still present uh, to Parliament a deal. Parliament would essentially have a yes, no vote on that deal. Um, and the government will have the right to decide what happens if Parliament 
uh, votes it down. I think there were some compromises, there were some statements from ministers at the last minute um, kind of clarifying that Parliament would, of course, have some powers uh, to raise to raise their voice if they were very, very concerned. But they would not have what they were at one point looking for, which is the right to direct the government uh, towards the end of negotiations. So um, we'll move on after this, but this is like the classic problem with uh, pro-European Tories, that they were unwilling to sacrifice party unity whereas the pro-Brexit Tories have always been happy to rebel. Like, is that it in summation, really? I think certainly there was... You can make the argument that uh, the, the rebel Tories have on consistently kind of marched their supporters up the hill and then come back down without without a fight. And there's only so long that that can continue to happen. I mean, a number of people raised the point that um, if this continues to happen, they lose their integrity as a rebel group. Also... We have to think about the time in negotiations that this is happening. There's obviously a very crucial moment for the Prime Minister. If the government had been defeated by their own MPs last week, it would have it would have been a, a very significant reputational damage, I think, for the Prime Minister, especially as we're heading into what looks like quite a tense um, and likely to be disappointing uh, EU summit next week. And I mean, from an Irish perspective, it, it seems that it's almost a given that this summit is just going to come and go without any progress. Is is that the feeling in the UK as well? I think so. I think kind of across the board, across EU member states and the UK, the, the sense is that we're not going to get uh, significant progress at this summit. It's likely to be simply a staging post. We've already heard um, kind of key figures, both on the UK side and in Ireland, signposts that really we're looking at, at the October summit now. What we're looking for is real progress on the backstop solution by October. Uh, so I think everybody is looking at the summit and thinking, right, well, this isn't going to be uh, the main battleground. And, and the white paper that's, that's coming out next month, I think, I mean, is there going to be anything in that or is that just another kind of proposition that's likely to be rejected? We will have to wait and see. It's been It's been quite closely guarded by the government up until now we've only recently heard um it is looking to it, the, the government is looking to publish this i think it's the week beginning of 9th july supposedly it will set out in greater detail what the mansion house statement by the prime minister um laid out uh, at the beginning of this year so a broad framework um of what the uk is looking for in its future relationship with the eu but just how significant the detail detail will be we'll have to wait and see but one point that the, the Tory government or Theresa May has made is this backstop position where the whole of the UK would stay aligned in you know a no deal scenario um, and the EU hasn't been very impressed by this because they think that the UK is trying to perhaps shape out a future trading arrangement out of that. Is there merit in that thought process or is that just the EU being uh, you know being cynical? So I think there are two things there. One, the EU the EU seems quite um, underwhelmed by the proposition that the UK has put forward so far, um, and I would argue rightly so because the, the UK government, after six six months after having concluded the December joint agreement, has only just put on the table the customs aspect of their proposal. And I think, as has been said by a number of people at this point, customs will only solve a minority of the issues on the border. Um, and realistically, the government needs to be more forthcoming about what it's thinking of in terms of regulatory barriers. And we have heard nothing. The EU has had, had nothing formal put forward by the UK on that front. So I think the EU was right. Um, and it, it had good basis on which to say this is insufficient. This is an insufficient pro, uh, proposal. However, I don't think the EU um, rejected it out of hand. The point that Michel Barnier seemed to be making was that the EU's backstop 
Um, so this would be the one where Northern Ireland remained in a regulatory area with the, with the EU um, and remained in the EU's customs territory. That particular backstop, he argues, cannot be extended to the whole of the UK for exactly the reasons that you're suggesting. One, that this would be kind of preempting the, the negotiations on the future relationship. And two, I think the other argument the EU is putting forward is that it would undermine the integrity of the single market to extend this sort of selective approach to the wider um, UK economy. I think that is uh, somewhat of a fragile argument, quite quite a weak argument. Um, the fact is, if it can be extended to, if if that can be, if that such a political proposal can be put on the table for Northern Ireland, there is no inherent reason why it could not be extended to the UK. Um, I understand that the EU is concerned that this would preempt negotiations, but equally, from a UK perspective. The idea of signing up to the EU's backstop proposal has exactly the same sentiments. There will be those on the UK side saying, well, what incentive will the EU have now to realistically and robustly engage with us on negotiations for the future relationship? They would essentially have won everything they wanted in this backstop. So, I mean, from the UK perspective, is is Northern Ireland and the border question being used as leverage? Then? I think there is. There, there is certainly, um, a, a, by some in the UK, there is a, a, a sense that... Um, the issue of Northern Ireland is is being used in a particular way by the EU. I don't necessarily buy into that argument. I don't think that's a strong argument. I think it's obviously something that the UK and Ireland and the EU will have to work out together. This is something that affects all territories and all um, parties involved, and it is a very significant issue that does need to be overcome. That said, I, I think it's wrong um, on the EU side to look at the UK's criticism and suggest that this is just the UK um, worried because they have the Democratic Unionist Party in, in in a supply and confidence relationship with the government um, and so on and so forth. I think the, the UK opposition to the EU's backstop is legitimate, is one the Prime Minister was right to say that a UK Prime Minister cannot realistically accept because what we're talking about here is a situation where Northern Ireland would, um, for all intents and purposes, be looked on by the international com- community as different to the UK. If the US were to sign a trade agreement with the UK, they would no longer be signing a trade agreement with Northern Ireland under the EU's backstop proposal. And and those, I think, are some of the concerns that the UK has been trying to make. Why do you think the EU is backing Ireland so strongly? Um, I think there are a, a, a number of things there. One, I think has a lot to do with the diplomatic engagement of Ireland. We know for a fact that even before the referendum vote, Ireland foreign department had been very much engaged on the question of what happens if the UK leaves the EU um, and certainly after the referendum vote um, engaged very heavily with their counterparts in the other EU member states and in the institutions to push their concerns and, and kind of um, the aspects of Brexit that affect them to the forefront of, of the EU's mind and I think that worked very very well. Some of the other reasons the EU is obviously very very concerned about the integrity of its single market this is the Brexit is being negotiated at a time where the EU is also managing a multitude of other crises. We have the, Euro, the question of Eurozone reform. We have the question of the migration crisis. Um, the, the idea that Brexit should challenge the fundamental principles of the EU's internal market is clearly something that the EU is averse to. And then finally, Ireland is a smaller member state in the EU. If at this point in time, the EU cannot show itself to be firmly behind its smaller member states, then there will be others in the EU who, who will look around and say, well, does the EU work for us or is it simply um, the bigger member states that get to have their voices heard? So we've set out a lot of the 
the very knotty issues around Ireland, which are, are holding the whole negotiations up really at the moment. Is, is a no-deal scenario a real possibility or is it just a bluff? So this, this is a very different trade negotiation when we think about it. When Whenever two parties come to the table to try and agree a relationship... The po- if if they do not manage to do so, the end state, the status quo scenario is what is what perseveres. That it will simply be no change in the relationship. However, with Brexit, we're looking at something completely different. We're negotiating in back in a backward sense, in a, in a sort of way. If if we fail to reach an agreement, there will be no deal. Things will not stay the same. And because of that reason, no deal is always a possibility. No deal would always be on the table. Um, that said, I don't think. We are looking at a, a kind of a high probability of a no deal scenario in March 2019. Um, I think there is clearly significant p- political and economic will on both sides um, not for the UK not to crash out um, next year. It won't necessarily be easy. There are certainly kind of very key elements of the withdrawal agreement that still need to be um, fixed before we can be certain that no deal will not happen. Um, but I, I, but I, I don't think that it is a high probability at this point. And I mean, if the June deadline seems to be dead in the water and October seems to be the next staging post, next deadline. Do you think that deadline will be breached? Do you think there'll be a future deadline? I mean, I know the votes in the European um, parliaments that have to go through is kind of the reason for the October deadline. But do you think October will be a new deadline or just a new deadline broken? I think it's it's a good possibility that, that, Octo- that the agree, agree, an agreement may not be reached by October. I think the Taoiseach made a very interesting point when he said we cannot we cannot strike a deal at the very last minute in October because October is not a negotiating round. October is simply a point at which the EU27 leaders sit down and say yes or no. Um, so if in advance of the October summit, we still haven't had real progress um, on, on the two main issues, which are the Irish border, the backstop proposal for the Irish border and the governance of the overall agreement, then by all means, yes, the, the deadline can be pushed back once again. Um, but we will clearly be hitting quite a tense time if that is the case. It's always within the EU's hand to say, right, we'll have a, a very special summit in November or in, in December to finally agree um, on the withdrawal agreement. But clearly, Tensions will be very, very high on both sides. The possible, the, not just in in governments, but also businesses, will be extremely worried if we've if we've hit the final kind of hurdle and still not reached an agreement that that we, we could have no deal in March. So moving on to businesses, Boris, um, you know, your esteemed foreign secretary has recently been quoted as saying um, "fuck business," uh, quote unquote, when asked. Um, what their concerns were and you had the top five business lobbying organisations doing a joint interview in the Sunday Times uh, recently. What is the level of frustration amongst the business community in the UK um, at the moment? I think it's clearly extremely high and and I think this is mostly to do with the lack of clarity that they have had around the arrangements both kind of immediately after um, after our March Brexit, because of course that transitional agreement that has been agreed in one sense is not firm and fixed until we have the withdrawal agreement signed. Um, but equally, they're very, very concerned about what will be the future domestic environment and trading relations with the EU after the transitional arrangement. They've had very, very little detail, as have kind of as, as we know, because it's not publicly available detail on what the government is planning. Um, and I think these are legitimate concerns that businesses are raising. I think actually, if pushed hard, business would be willing to accept a slightly less ambitious arrangement if they could have more clarity about that 
in a, in a shorter time frame if they could have that clarity up front now. I'm pleased to say that the Taoiseach, when I met him recently, has agreed that uh, the UK and Irish governments and the Commission can sit down and look in more detail at the proposals that we've put forward. Uh, there won't be tripartite or three-way talks. There will be talks between the EU27 and the UK, and Ireland is part of the EU27. And we're much stronger, by the way, uh, as one of 27. I think people uh, have seen seen that uh, in, in action in the last couple of months uh, since Brexit. With the benefit of historical hindsight, we can all see things which we would wish had been done differently, or not at all. Brian, we just heard, we just spoken with um, IRT. What are the main takeaways? What what did we learn? I think we learned that there is mm, there's an agreement uh, that there is not as much clarity from the UK government as there should be. Uh, there won't be, or it looks very unlikely that there will be a second vote um, on the UK's relationship with the EU at the end of all of this, um, and also that you know the UK government. Uh, has still to come out with a paper in July, um, which will be looked at very closely. And certainly, I imagine we'll be speaking about it on the podcast. I think the other thing as well is she was very strong on the backstop in terms of the split. And I think maybe it's something we don't quite grasp or maybe appreciate, um, which would effectively have Northern Ireland, the Irish version of the backstop, would have Mm -hmm. Northern Ireland remain um, within the European Union and she made the point that if the United States was doing a future trade deal with a UK post-Brexit with that backstop in place, um, that Northern Ireland might necessarily be part of that that trade deal. So like, I thought that was quite a sort of illuminating moment uh, of the interview. Yeah, that was a very striking example and a way in which um, the backstop deal is, uh, as it is constituted or viewed by Brussels, um, is unacceptable to the UK. Um you know, she, she made the point, you know, rightfully Theresa May could, said she couldn't accept this. And yet that's broadly speaking uh, what they appeared to accept in December. Um, so, you know, absolutely, I, I can 100% see the political uh, realities um, behind not allowing Northern Ireland to diverge um, from a regulatory or economic perspective from the UK, from the rest of the UK. But, you know, let's find an alternative solution that works. Um, And their solution is one that the EU hasn't completely cast aside, but at the same time doesn't seem mad keen on. So that's why the June summit has, you know, broadly been, you know, is no longer as big an event as it was billed to be. I I think the other thing as well is that, I mean, a lot's been made of we're two years on. um, And I thought that she was... Quite, quite interesting on kind of uh, two years on we've had a bit of time to think they've done polling to look at why people voted for Brexit and take back control was very much to the forefront of it and also this this question around immigration and Nick Clegg's point that you know the, the posted workers directive and the other limits on, on freedom of movement she was less clear that 
you know, from his perspective, he was sort of wishful that it had come in before the vote. She she seemed pretty clear that she doesn't think it would have been enough to uh, to have stopped the vote. No, I, I, and I'm inclined to agree with her. Um, I mean, look, there was 30 years of British newspapers um, blaming immigrants for problems, broad, broadly speaking, broad brush. Um, and, you know, to overturn that with a few of the kind of the nuances that, you know, Nick Clegg alluded to in his Financial Times piece just wouldn't have been anywhere near enough to change the minds of people over the course of a short campaign. Um, I, I, I don't think there were nuances. I mean, it's pretty pretty blunt. Belgium's been expelling unemployed EU citizens. Um, and Germany, you have to register um, and you can also be expelled as well. And if you're expelled from Germany, you can't return, even if you're an EU citizen. So, so I think there's slightly more nuances in that no, particular And I, I agree with that. And that that's very well put. But in the UK, from a UK perspective, they are nuances. They are not, you know, fundamental changes to freedom of movement, which was clearly such a big deal in the UK in terms would be my of, takeaway in terms of simplicity of messages if you can expel unemployed EU citizens that's a much easier message to sell and it's not it's more it's more than mere nuance yeah um, but one it was never sold at all ever I can't remember it or, or if it was ever used maybe it has been it, it wasn't no but I, yeah. I, I think in terms of dismissing Nick Clegg's point it, it is more than a nuance it actually might have made some difference and it is an easy to understand message yeah absolutely but over a 30-year period, one or two of those, you know, levers to pull, um, A, were never pulled, B, were never communicated. So they do end up, you know, in terms of the fundamentals of freedom of movement, um, you know, they, they come across and appear in the British context as nuances, not as, you know, fundamental policy levers that you can use. So I think you're correct, but the way in which it's viewed and the prism in the UK it was never seen as it would never have been seen as enough. Grant, so the June summit won't resolve it. Nope. So if you sleep through the June summit, you haven't really missed much. Not from a Brexit perspective. And uh, Brian, actually, before we go, um, a friend of the pod, uh, the Irish border has has tweeted that it's it's taking an annual leave from uh, what it describes as um, the pointless June summit. So I don't think there's anything in this this podcast that'll have. Uh, I've questioned that view, will it? No, I think broadly speaking, the Irish border is correct. Um, so I, I mean, I guess we look forward to seeing it back, back online, and hopefully back on the podcast. Yeah, sometime soon. Okay, we'll leave it there. So, um, and what's our email again, Brian? In case people want to get in touch, Paddy wants to know Brexit at gmail dot com or on Twitter at Paddy Brexit. Okay, we'll leave it there. This podcast is part of the Headstuff Podcast Network.